0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I've known Mike Murphy for probably three decades. I did battle with him and admired him uh, as in my years as a political consultant. Uh, he's obviously been in the middle of the news Uh, this election year with his unsuccessful efforts on behalf of uh, Jeb Bush. But there isn't a more hilarious or incisive uh, commentator on politics. As you can hear from this conversation that we recorded recently at the Institute of Politics, where Mike is a Spring Fellow. Mike Murphy, my old warhorse counterpart. Welcome. Welcome to here. Welcome to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago I'm going to start off by telling secrets about you that <laughs> that uh, I ran into your parents oh, yeah. from Michigan in 2008 uh, wandering around the snows of uh, Iowa uh, working for one Barack Obama so uh, what happened to you? Did they drop you on your head? Did you? That's well, my dad's
0: do... joke, that I fell out of the stroller, because they were both <laughs>
1: Democrats. And
0: uh, my mom had talked my dad reluctantly into being in their first Iowa expedition for Howard Dean. They had the glow-in-the-dark hats and everything. And I'll never forget this. My father got removed from the caucus team. He was a uh, very political guy. Had been a lawyer for many years. The General counsel of the Blue Cross plan. Very involved in politics. From so a political family. My grandfather was not elected in Wayne County, in Detroit, and as a Democrat. Oh yes, yeah. Joe Murphy, judge on the probate court, thirty-six years, six elections. Anyway, they pulled my dad off the door-to-door team because he refused to follow orders. All he wanted to do was find people marked hard for Edwards, go to their house uninvited, and argue with them on the stoop. <laughs> so he was removed. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I grew up in a totally political family. So that arguing
1: thing comes naturally. It, I mean.
0: it was it's a very kind of classic formula. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah no. So it, they they would say rebellion. I would say Jimmy Carter, because I you know I was in high school during the 70s. I was class of '80. And uh, I was very interested in international relations and foreign policy, that sort of stuff. And I'd see our president being chased by a rabbit in a rowboat and, you know, <laughs> Soviet imperialism on the march. So that was what I was interested in, and it took me to the Georgetown Foreign Service School. You know, so that's really what got me. I love the, the theater of politics, so I love the conventions. And it was a very political. It drove them crazy. I was a Republican. I, I didn't quite have the Alex Keaton briefcase. When did close. you
1: come out? To them Oh, they, they, they knew when
0: they knew in high school there were bad signs. yeah And though my mom was uh, <laughs> a real committed Democrat, probably she would say pretty progressive. My dad was more the crusty Scoop Jackson, and he'd been around the business growing up. Mm-hmm. I think my grandfather, the elected judge, always had a theory that my dad would wind up in Congress or something because right Was after... your
1: grandfather alive when you were a kid? Was he? Yeah, yeah, he was alive. He was still the judge. Oh, yeah, right. Like,
0: oh, yeah, yeah. The black Cadillac. You know, the police chiefs at the house drinking on the weekend because it was the old Irish machine that ran Wayne County, and half of which was Detroit, and half of which were the other you know industrial cities and in the western suburbs. So it was an interesting time. And I remember kind of soaking up a little bit of that atmosphere. Yeah.
1: So you caught some of the stories and some of the characters. Everybody
0: looked like Carol O'Connor.
1: And, uh, <laughs> you know, the African-American politicians were kind of, I'm sitting across from you by the way, and I'm thinking, you know, you look a little like them too. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. It, it's a genetic thing. Yes. Um, so they, uh, it was
0: just kind of around and, uh, was, I always knew he kind of had the ambition for my dad because he was always volunteering my dad to do things like join the Army, put him on a Teamster truck for two years in the Hoffa's local, went to night Law School. You know, I think the judge had a plan. Uh, and my dad loved politics, but he never wanted
1: to be a candidate. So you, uh, by the time you got to Georgetown, did you have in your mind that you were going to be involved in politics? Well, I was in the College Republicans there.
0: And it was, and this is, remember, right after Reagan gets elected. So it's a terrific time to be a College Republican. It was fun. And in was Washington. popular. Yeah, mm-hmm. even in DC. We would go down and protest the Russian embassy and get thrown out. You know, there's all kinds of trouble to make. We'd be in all these wars with the YAF chapter on campus. And because Georgetown was in DC, Georgetown was always a power in national college Republican politics because all the Republican political nerds around the country want to come to Washington. And we were locals, so we could always pack the hall with delegates. So all kinds of shenanigans with uh, guys, many of whom are still in politics now. And I was the Georgetown chairman, I remember that. And then I got an internship on the Hill. Who are some
1: of the other people who were around then?
0: Well, uh, there was a guy just before me named Frank Lavin who wound up our ambassador to Singapore and uh, was on the uh, National Security Council and then uh, was an undersecretary for commerce. Uh, He was very close with Carl, who was of the generation before me. Carl Rove. Carl Rove, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was uh, Frank Atkinson who went on to do things in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, there, There was a guy got elected in the state house in California. The, the guy I remember who was a friend of mine was this wild frat guy from Georgia who always had liquor, was bouncing off hallways. You know, We'd have to chain him to the radiator in the middle of the night like Shecky Green to shut him up. Mm-hmm. He was a lot of fun named Ralph Reed. It was uh. before, yeah, Ralph and, and God decided God needed representation. <laughs> but Ralph was a hell of a lot of fun back then. And he was like from Georgia. And Grover Norquist was around back then from, uh, from Massachusetts. And Jack Abramoff. Who yeah, ran for chairman right. in those years? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I was on the anti Abramoff uh, uh, slate. We were always fighting him as the loyal opposition, but he outorganized us and was and did well until. He didn't yeah well, yeah until he uh, until the, until it.
1: the accident as they say
0: Jack was the first guy to fly around the country and really, really organize the national college Republican election. He outworked everybody, but he was a very kind of tense guy. you could tell he was you know on a mission, and you never know those mission guys which way it'll go It's so
1: interesting to me because you know Rove came out of the uh, uh, young Republicans and this was like a real organizing forum you don't you didn't see that on the democratic side you know you people came out of the anti-war movement they but the young democrats was not the place that was a font of yeah uh, no their future leadership there was a moment of kind of energy in it and it was fun
0: it was very libertarian it was and it was very foreign policy oriented uh and reagan was kind of a spark to the whole thing i mean it was tremendous fun it was not uh not particularly uptight, which is kind of the rap Republicans get now in the pop culture.
1: I don't know. I don't think people call Donald Trump uptight. Do well, you? I
0: guess so. He's kind of a counter thing. Normally, we're seen as the <laughs> elders and footloose. So I guess in that small way, he's a step forward. But in every other way, he's, in my view, a step back.
1: How did you, uh, how did you make the transition from, uh, from that to becoming a—you know, when I met you, you were the young, hot, Media consultant on the Republicans. I so saw you and Alex Castellanos. Right. We,
0: we, we set up. Well, what happened was is so I, being chairman of Georgetown Republicans, I kept an eye on the internships and, you know, inspired by this great city of Chicago. I'd always get my beak wet if I saw a really good one coming by and <laughs> I wound up working for three congressmen from California who shared a staffer who would make these little cable TV shows. There'd be three stools in the house studio, and one guy would interview his two colleagues about how great he is, and they'd switch chairs. And everybody <laughs> wound up with a 30-minute show that we'd put on these big U-matic cassette tapes, about as big as an encyclopedia volume, and send them out to California, the land of the future, where they would run them on this crazy thing called local cable. You know, It was a space age. And so one day we had a special celebrity guest, Dave Prowse, who nobody's heard of, but in, he's the guy in the Darth Vader suit in the original Star, Trek, Star mm. Wars. And he was this big bodybuilder who spoke like David Niven from Britain. Very nice guy. And he was on a PR tour because in the UK he was Safety Man, which was a thing with a green cross like outfit about don't cross the street without looking kids. And I think they were trying to expand it to the fertile commerce of the U.S. So he was being interviewed and a, a member of Congress who remained remain nameless came in from a great Midwestern state. There will lots of <laughs> And started asking him about playing Darth Vader in the movies and was really interested if anybody ever got hurt on the set with the laser swords. You know, you could really cut an arm off if you weren't careful. And I look around and I cut the <laughs> eye of one of the cameramen who's seen it all and we're thinking... This knucklehead thinks it's real, and you know, British Army have one of those things, and uh, uh, and, and Prouse doesn't know if it's a joke. You know, he can't figure it out. And I'm looking around, and I thought, you know, this political thing, there might be room here for success. It doesn't seem like Mensa, and and I love TV, and I love film, and I love theater, and I love putting on a show. So I started in my dorm room at Georgetown. I'd worked around a a little bit um, in production, but not much, started making television commercials for the National Conservative Pack, PAC, And I clearly didn't think I had the production background, but I had all these ideas. So I called this well-known producer who, it turned out, had made one ad named Alex Castellanos. And we teamed up, and I took a leave of absence my senior year from Georgetown, which led to lightning bolts coming from Detroit back home. Uh, and ran away to join, of all damn things, the Republican Party. And so Alex and I went out and starved and le- slept on couches and learned how to kind of do it and became media consultants. And we were yeah. never really party guys. We were always kind
1: of our own thing. And we had a great run. Yeah, you know, uh, I get asked a lot by young people, how do you how do you get to be you? How do you – and uh, the truth is so, so much of it is le- learned by doing. Yeah. I mean, there's no – real school to go to to become a media consultant. I managed Paul Simon's campaign when I was 29. For the I right. had left journalism, managed his campaign for the Senate, got involved in the strategic stuff and the production of ads. And I thought, gee, I, I bet you I could do this and started a media yeah, it, firm. It's
0: always entrepreneurial. Our, our big rule
1: was, one,
0: always, and we starve because we never make that much money, but always hire the best Production technicians we could there was this great old cameraman who'd been all over the world with 60 minutes doing everything named Bob Peterson So we'd always stretch a little on who we'd hired to learn the production techniques and really kind of get into it And two I had a couple of good mentors. Uh, Arthur Finkelstein taught me polling uh, who had worked around Nick Pack of of New York, yeah. And one of the great kind of you know wild madman intellects of the party but but very influential on a bunch of us Alex had worked for him before and so I got a good education in strategy, which I was always interested in, and later just became my ambition. I, I'd see kind of dumb strategies coming down, and I would be the picture maker. And I thought, boy, I got to become a strategist and stop being told to make stupid commercials. And uh, and then it was kind of the heyday of TV, you know, advertising and statewide. So I had a great run through the '80s and particularly the '90s. Did a lot of the Republican governors.
1: Yeah, a lot of them in the Midwest. You did. Uh... Uh, uh, Engler in Michigan, and Tommy Thompson in Wisconsin, and uh, Branstad in Iowa, and so on. People who would be today thought of as kind of center-right, almost moderate
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: Republicans. But back then, they were were considered sort of uh, the, the point of the spear of a new... Kind of conservatism.
0: Yeah, they were governing conservatives. Most I I kind of specialized in governors, so I did a lot of Senate races, and they were guys who came in with new ideas, but the management chops to implement them. So they go invent welfare reform, new tax codes, and Engler and Thompson had kind of a friendly rivalry to who could, you know, like lower the have the lowest employment rate of any big county, and uh, and then of course Jeb Bush. I did his comeback race after he lost in ninety four. I did the ninety eight and two thousand reelect. I always like playing on. Other turf, too. I, I think offense has been in the other guy's end zone. So I liked working blue and purple states. I did Christy Whitman over in New Jersey, you know, both of those races. and because I, I I never thought it was that fun to go to a safe Republican state where you're organized and votes you get for free. and in the, in the blue or purple states, you got to have more of a pitch than vote Republican. You know, you got to go convert and persuade. And the Great Lakes Republican governors were good at that. And we have a little bit of a comeback. Walker's a guy who's figured that out, though. He's got, you know, um, that place has been a battleground. So it's more a hardened approach, but it was good training because when you wake up knowing if you don't change what's going to happen through persuasion and strategy, you're going to lose. The free vote equals loss. You learn
1: stuff. So you and I had a couple of. Uh, we, we
0: have, yeah. We've we've knocked each other out a couple of times, yeah, and
1: and uh, including in Iowa, a couple of governors races in Iowa. One thing that I knew when we were competing against each other is that there was going to be some hilarious and devastating ad coming my way at some point during this campaign. When you think about the the many many ads that you produced, uh, what is the what is what's one that just that, you still, that still makes you smile? You know, I would say,
0: I'll give you one that wasn't really a funny ad, but just strategically. Again, I always like offense. And when Jeb Bush was looking at running for governor, after he lost in 94, when everybody was winning, his passion was education. And normally you'd take a poll in the state and you'd find number one issue, jobs. Back then crime was real high, taxes, good Republican issues. So we're going to make the campaign about Republican issues, try to create more Republicans. But Jeb's passion was education. So strategically, if we can take education away from the Dems, we're going to win the tax and crime war for free because we're Republicans. But can we do that credibly?
1: Because that's what Jeb's passionate about. He'll be good at it. So Let let me stop you for one second here Um, because this is really interesting to me. I've always felt like you have to build a winning campaign from um, the essence of who someone is, that if you Mm -hmm. try and make them what they're not, that you're generally going to fail. Uh, and so your thought was, this is who this guy is. Right. And it
0: just happens to be an issue. Right. If we win, we break the back of the other guy. We, right. we got the stake. Right. So we went all in. And and Jeb was committed, and he was great at it. And they found us in their backyard fighting, which is not what they expected. They were working on how to like take crime away from us or something. And so... That's what I always would like to do, and I'd always try to align the media with some credibility to do that. As far as spots that uh, kind of caught on, Angler in 1990 was a long shot, and Governor Blanchard was an effective Paul. He was ahead, and he'd, he'd done what a lot of incumbents do, which is he had he had a small tax reform that his PR guys had ballyhooed and do a huge thing. and People knew it wasn't that big. And so we found out the nickel ad. We found out in our calculation, of course, we had our pejorative accountants who were strict constitutions, but we said it was a nickel a week. And so one of the things that's hardest, you know this, to do in a campaign is when you have something that's levered that'll work, is commit everything to it. And so a nickel a week property taxes became the thing. The buttons were nickels, the ads were nickels. We just grabbed the nickel thing and ran with it. And we were 20 points behind. And it clicked, and away we went. And so I'm always a believer try to find that thing that's true that's credible and amplify it but have the I, people ask me what strategy is I say it's a list of things you're not going to do so you pick the two or three things that'll get you there that really work and then commit even in the beginning it's hard stupid nickel commercials everybody knows you need a spot with the the family and dog in it you know you idiot and you kind of <laughs> have to have the elephant skin to commit to your strategy and get stupid and execute it and that's the hardest thing to do in a campaign
1: well, yeah. In, in addition to that, you have to get the campaign to organize behind right. the message. It's not just the ads. The ads you can control, you can't control. You can't always control the day-to-day activities right. and statements from a campaign. So how, how do you get control of a campaign?
0: I always use the analogy, it's like a caterpillar leg. And if all the legs aren't moving, you know, it, we're not going to go anywhere. So my approach when I was doing statewide wise was I, I would never hire, and I, I'm not knocking them because there are a lot of good folks there. But I wouldn't hire guys out of the committees or out of D.C. I'd hire guys who'd gone and run. Out of the party committee. Yeah, out of the beltway. Guys who'd run a tough congressional or state senate race as the manager. You'd have the job. And I'd bring them to D.C., and then they would back me up so I could put an operational guy in the campaign to do the Coca-Cola test. Well, we sell the syrup not to water. In every country, it's going to be red and magically, you know, delicious and refreshing. Those are our rules. Is it on the rule? No. And they'd kind of be the cops to teach the locals what's going on because most of these guys doing like a challenger race maybe they have some political experience but really they're sitting in a batting cage getting overwhelmed with the ukrainian newspaper needs two thousand for the endorsement or lose the whole ukrainian vote you know the candidate's spouse's best friend has written a radio they're just they're getting killed so helping them narrow and focus and execute with some benchmarks so the whole campaign is behind it is the key otherwise you're just putting grps up as something which can help but it won't won't yeah
1: yeah um you you talk about uh, the candidates you worked for, and your interest in working in blue states. Um, that's not really uh, what Republicans are doing. And Mitt Romney was another of your candidates in uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah, in the governor's race right, yeah. there. So um, where do you fit in? And this obviously is something that leads into what you've done in the last year. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I know she's spending a lot of time screenwriting and doing other things out in California these days is there a place for uh, for someone who thinks blue states and and reaching out uh, to Democrats uh, is there a place for a guy like you in the Republican Party <laughs> It's
0: a little in vogue but you know I'm not really doing the consulting and the straight politics anymore I gave that up a while ago I came out of retirement to help Jeb because I believed him a lot and I, I like kind of the romantic long shot of trying to elect a well, uh, inclusive conservative in the party and not a resentment candidate and we'd see how that worked out we got we got thrown <laughs> we'll out get, we'll, we'll get we'll yeah. get to that
1: but well, why why did you retire you're well, you're, you're, yeah, you're still you know you're still in your prime well i
0: started i started doing this when i was 19 and i had a tremendous run you know i mean i I got to work around the world. I got to do a lot of a lot of interesting campaigns. I had a huge win record. I always read on Twitter what a loser I am because of these presidentials. But I, I piled up a huge amount of statewide wins in California, the Arnold Recall. I mean, I, I had a great run. But I found after, particularly the 2000 race, but later... 2000, the, I
1: want to talk about 2000. Yeah. You worked for John McCain. I worked McCain. for the Straight Talk Express, the first McCain race, yeah. Against uh, George W. Well, Bush. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I, I'd been from the Jeb silo, so I had never been part of kind of his operation, but there, it was a little uncomfortable. Yeah. And most of my governor clients were, were for uh, Governor Bush because they liked and respected him as a fellow governor. But my point about the party would be that the theory changed a little. We became, in, to some extent, more about turnout than persuasion and it was a different theory of elections. And the old persuasion guys like me who are like, all right, let's go take their issues away. you know, Let's fight in their backyard. Kind of a different strategy became out of vogue a little bit because a different crowd came in. And um, so I I was always hard to kill, so to speak, because I had a a good record and a lot of clients. So it didn't really affect me, but I I would look at some of the managers in the party, some of the mid-level operatives, and I'd I'd be talking to them about this, and they'd fight back a little, and I'd say, look, I get all that, and it's important, but you went to a bad college. You've never been shown how to do it the other way, where we go win the Illinois of the world, the Ohio's, the Michigan's, the Pennsylvania's, all of which we used to have Republican governors in. And we've had some not so long ago, and currently, and some we do. So it did change a bit. So I, I didn't really get forced out so much as I got a little bored with it. And I wanted to try other stuff. I've always been kind of a communications guy, so I do a lot of corporate strategy work. I work in high tech a lot because I'm a computer nerd. I've always been. Um, and I used to lug, Castellanos and I, he was a, a nerd too. We used to lug K-Pro computers around, which were as big as a damn sewing machine with five-inch floppy disk and a little CRT screen. it. out of, We thought we were so cool shoveling these things in the airport <laughs> overhead. Um, so I, I really like technology and startups, and I just have wide interest. And yeah, I am the dues-paying member of two unions, whether I want to be or not. Uh, the Writers Guild out west and SAG-AFTRA and my union buddies back in Detroit are totally unimpressed with the Writers Guild. You know, what happens in a strike? You get a paper
1: cut. Ooh, <laughs> pretty bad. Let's talk a little bit about that race in 2000 um, because it, you know the straight talk. Express John McCain was, you know, they, they called him the Maverick in 2008, but 2000 was really the Maverick McCain. Um, talk about that race and your theory of the case, because George W. Bush was sort of the consensus inside the beltway, as you point out, governor's candidate. He was the governor of Texas, son of the former go- uh, president. Right. And people felt he was the guy. Oh, he was
0: a very formidable candidate. I-, I have a weakness at the presidential level for long shots. And I believe presidential primaries are where you ought to totally follow your heart because it's an opportunity to define what the party's for because that's what a nominee really does. And the presidency is so important. So I I really thought McCain was great. I I was not an anti-George W. guy. I thought he'd be a totally competent president. I thought he'd been a good governor of Texas. But McCain at a time post-Clinton, when people had so much cynicism about politics and the doublespeak and after the Lewinsky scandal, the lies, McCain was somebody who was seen as not only credentialed in something outside of politics, from you know his kind of personal story, but he was willing to tilt against things. He was honest, uh, even when it was not in his political interest. And so, even though it was one of these classic start at one percent and throw ourselves against a windshield like a bug and lose campaigns, it was irresistible. And I really liked him, and I've never had more fun. You know, we uh, we went off and we we lit a match, and it was McCain. He caught on, and we had a moment there where we might have been able to kind of heist the nomination, but as these things often go, in the end, the balance of resources kind of trips you up, but it uh, I was on that bus for about 120 days straight. And yeah, it was an amazing you, loaded up,
1: you loaded up your bus with reporters. He sat there and had a rolling press conference, essentially, for uh, months of this campaign, yeah, I don't think it's ever been done before. Or since people must have thought you were nuts.
0: Oh, totally. Everybody forgets the early reviews were always terrible. Mm-hmm. That's so stupid. Washington experts, you know, <laughs> we're always wrong. By the way, you can just always hedge against that. But it was a. It was the theory was one. Let McCain be McCain. He was very gregarious. He was very well informed. He was happy talking to the media. And two, if we were the the campaign of. Honesty and not the usual politics, and not being afraid to take chances by actually believing in things that weren't always popular. Then why are we afraid of the media? Let's show some of the same courage there with transparency. And but I'll remember. I mean, in the staff, at first it was terrifying because it's not the normal. McCain greet that. Uh, he was ready to go. And M- McCain is the firehouse Dalmatian. He hears the bell ring and you know jumps <laughs> on. Where's the fire? I can. There's no stopping him. So he was fine. But it reminded me of being like the road manager for the great Walenda. You know, the first three times you're shaking, you're watching him on the wire, you're feeling every gust of wind, you're praying. By show 48, you're like, Carl, get across the damn rope. We got a show in Albany in two hours. Chop, (laughs) chop. You know, you kind of just go with it. And we had a couple of times where he'd have a gaffe. And you know we get in trouble for a little while, but that was all. That was the test. Yeah. Which is the day it goes bad, you give it in up. In any campaign, or do you double down and commit. Yeah. 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 And everybody, you know, not in our campaign. Luckily, it was a small number of us, and we were committed to the idea of what we were doing. So, including it really McCain. This. So if he yeah. had
1: a screw up, he didn't feel like let's shut it down.
0: Yeah, he'd get, you know irritated by it because he might have thought, of, like, we'd get a new reporter on and wanted to get noticed and might have taken a paraphrase that was a little aggressive and amplified it. You know, th- th- that would be irritating. And, and to be honest, you know, I'd be back there for a lot of it because most of the campaign leadership, particularly Weaver and I, would travel. And, uh, John Weaver. John Weaver. Now, now, uh, now doing Kasich. Kasich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good consultant um, and a good friend of mine. So we, McCain and I would go into our shtick, you know, every once in a while, or we'd have Todd Harris, who was one of our traveling press secretaries, you know, bring up Italian TV, and then he'd get interviewed about his underwear for an hour and a half, and, you know, great <laughs> lovers of the Italian cinema. So we had ways to kind of go on autopilot to get a, bre- a breather from the New York Times, but they were they were all there. I've got this great black and white photo. I'm a photography guy, too, so I used to take all this cinema verite photography of all these things, of, the, of kind of the half circle of them all packed in,
1: and... Uh, what happened to uh, – after McCain lost, um, he cast a lot of – in the early years of the George W. Bush administration, he, he voted against uh, one of the tax cuts uh, after the war broke out, saying you, you shouldn't have tax cuts at times of war, never been done before. He obviously had aggressive positions on climate change and some other issues. Uh but he seemed to trim his sails a little bit going into the 2008 cycle when he saw himself under the Republican traditions. Being runner-up is usually leverage into the Traditionally, nomination, yeah. And he uh, uh, did he make a mistake by by, cha- by by conforming too much?
0: I don't know. I think um, a McCain with his sails trimmed a little bit is still a boat with much fuller sails than the average you know, GOP candidate for president. So I don't think he ever lost his McCainness. I think if there was an inflection point from it was when he picked Sarah Palin because that sent a signal of cynicism, I think, at least to some people, which was toxic to his brand. Um, but fundamentally... Why didn't you I,
1: work for him in 2008?
0: Well, I, I, uh, I had the what a lot of my friends-slash-clients in politics called the extremely rare occurrence of an ethical dilemma in the political hmm. consulting world. I had done Mitt Romney's campaign for governor of Massachusetts. And about halfway through that, we started thinking about a presidential campaign. We started organizing one. We set up something called the Commonwealth PAC and a talented operative named Trent Weisskopf and and Mitt's old business partner, Bob White. We had to get Bob to trade in the Gucci's for some boots. And we've sent him out to Iowa County to County meetings. You know, we started the, the early stuff. And McCain had told me after 2000, it was kind of lightning in a bottle and he wasn't going to run again. I remember we were... And his porch having some vodka as the sun went down, and you know, that was one time. Well, McCain called me up and say, What the hell? I'm you know, I'm old, eventually I'll die, I want to run again. The country needs leadership. And I love McCain. And I like Romney. I love Romney too. So I thought I've now got an ethical dilemma. And the normal thing to do, unfortunately, in political consulting is to, you know, make it an auction or something, but I, I would never work against Mitt and I would never work against John. So I called them both up and said, Mitt, I, I can't do this anymore. And John, I can't join. And uh, I had a great uh, dinner with with Weaver and uh, Mark Salter, who's uh, mm-hmm. the other... Real, McCain's alter ego. Yeah, yeah, he was a wonderful, wonderful human being and a, and a great guy. Uh, his tweets on the Trump thing are priceless. Um, and uh, I couldn't do it. So... Tim Russard called me up and say, hey, I I, you know, I don't really like to put political consultants on meet the press. You know, they steal stuff and it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it brings the aura of the thing down a little bit. But you you have this problem with telling the truth. You don't do the talking points. And if you're not going to do anything, why don't you do a little of that? And so that's kind of how I be, got into the TV pundit world. I used to be on Crossfire and that sort of stuff, but I hadn't really done it seriously. And I stayed in touch with both guys and they both took it really well. You know, they thought it was kind of the honorable thing to do. And uh, I, so I had the kind of uncomfortable situation of watching
1: a campaign I would have liked to participate in. You uh, you said a couple of minutes ago that uh, the ex- Washington experts are always wrong. Washington experts, uh, leading into this election cycle, uh, felt your man uh, Jeb Bush was uh, the likely nominee of the they party. Did. Why were they so spectacularly wrong? Well, we knew they were wrong, but that's
0: not something you advertise. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Jeb, uh, Jeb's son, Sally Bradshaw, a dear old friend of mine, mm-hmm. who it was Jeb's chief of staff and campaign manager, we all had dinner while he was thinking about running. And when his thinking about running decision was never very political. It was always policy, what could I get done, et cetera, et cetera. He, that's who he is. But we, we started talking about the politics. And we all agree it would be a long shot. I thought it would come down to Cruz and somebody. I, I was referring him. Well, you were years. right about that. Well, he, he's the McGovern of the party. You know, he resonates to a lot of the core base primary voters. And he's, he's shrewd about that. He yeah. knows that world very well. He ran yeah. a very powerful primary in Texas. And the question is, could we be the regular and could a regular beat him? And we all wrote kind of a number down. And nobody was under over 50%. Uh, but Jeb's In terms of was, his percentage chance oh, yeah, to Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jeb was, look... It has to be done. It has to be tried. And so let's do it. We can raise a bunch of money at least. So we'll we're, we're, we're be able to have the resources to make an argument. And so off we went. But the D.C. world, matter of fact, it made me incredibly nervous. The more Washington said we couldn't lose, the less sleep I'd get. Because I've made a career out of kind of betting the downside of conventional wisdom, because I think in D.C. particularly, it's totally disconnected from the reality. That's yes. why I'm glad I live in California. Yes.
1: Gary Hart, the old senator from Colorado, once told me Washington's always the last to get the news. Yeah, exactly. and I thought that was a great insight. So we looked at
0: it as, can we dominate our lane to get in the ring with Cruz? And the thing we didn't see coming was Trump. And we also didn't see that the, the populist conservative movement wing of the party, the Tea Party wing would be large enough to accommodate kind of one and a half candidates. Cruz, Trump, and the Trump would have plenty of appeal to the regulars just based on style. And so we were fighting for a relatively share, a smaller share of the vote with Scott Walker and Kasich and Marco Rubio, you know, from our home state who decided to run, and, uh, you know, a few others. So it was... It was a tough situation, and we, we always knew that we had this gap between the perception of invincibility and the reality of the primary. But we did the honorable thing. you go fight, you try. And you know I don't apologize for any of it. I, I, as I say, I'm a, a wild-eyed idealist in presidential primaries. I, in the statewide game, I'm you know as calculating as any political consultant. but uh, I, I'd always rather have the long shot guy that I think ought to be the leader of the party and hopefully the president. Then I would the sure thing, because the sure thing would be either a Trump or a Cruz. So now now, now we've got Stalingrad between two guys that are going to hand the White House to Hillary Clinton in the general election. That's the big outcome here.
1: You, uh, I, I want to get to the general in a second and where you think this is going. But you know the critique. Uh, you, you describe yourself as a wild-eyed idealist. And I know you well enough to know that uh, you know that you – really did have great affection for jeb bush you've talked about that for years to me uh and um but the rap is that you were uh, a well-heeled uh, pragmatist <laughs> and that yeah. you know you guys spent a boatload of money uh raised over a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. first of all why did uh, why did money mean so little in this uh, particular cycle uh you know Donald Trump has spent a relative pittance on television, mm-hmm. uh, dominated the earned media, as it's called, uh, and uh, completely bl- blown away. I mean, lots of money has been spent against him right. and lots of money has been spent on other candidates. Hasn't seemed to matter, which stands a lot of rules on on their head.
0: Yeah, I think that's more of an anomaly, but I'll, I'll try to give you at least my view. You know, We're fine out at the end of this how it all turns out. I think in the case of Trump, he's what my Hollywood pals would call a pre-aware title. That's why they make movies called Battleship or Iron Man 17. It's cheaper to market something that's already famous. And even you know, when you're on NBC primetime for 10 years, even if you're only teaching Gary Busey, years. you're on for 14 years, even if it's only teaching Gary Busey how to work a snow cone machine, you're famous. <laughs> and fame is worth a lot. Um, and then digital media has been great at amplifying him. It's free stamps for a famous guy. T- Twitter, it's been great.
1: And he's been so. pretty deft at using it.
0: Right. But if you take New York out, his home state, where he triumphed, and I was wrong. I thought the anti-Trump guys would hammer him in western New York. I thought Kasich would come a little more into life than just Manhattan. And I thought he'd come in in the low 40s there. So I was very surprised. Uh, I mean, after Wisconsin, that was my wrong, totally wrong prediction, and I'll own it. But Trump's average in everywhere where he hasn't been the tabloid king for, you know, decades, uh, has been under 50. Mm -hmm. So... He's gotten to his vote that responds to his message, but he hasn't gotten much farther than that. And that's why I still think he'll be in peril of getting to enough uh, delegates to win the nomination. We're no a lot more after Indiana on the third. Now, as far as our $100 million, I, I kind of have a two-part answer to that. First, I don't apologize at all because we raised over $100 million bucks for the Super PAC because we could. And because you put Jeb Bush in a room with some really smart people who care a lot about the country and are looking who to back. And you put Walker in that room. You put Rubio in that room. Uh, you put Huckabee in that room. You put Cruz in that room. Trump will never even be invited into the room because they, they know him. They think he's a fraud. And they were for Jeb because he thought he was a right guy to be president, right temperament, right vision, smart guy. And that, that resulted in dollars. So we had this terrific amplifier. We had a better opportunity to put our message out than anybody else. And guess what? People they, didn't eat the dog food. They didn't want it. They did not want, you know, low energy was not about energy. If Trump had Jeb's schedule, he'd be hospitalized after two days. It was about his civilized manner, that he is not screaming about electric fences on the border. It was a temperament thing. And Jeb's never going to change that. And he said he'd never be a grievance candidate. And that's what they're looking for. And, you know, it's a free country. They get what they're looking for. We'll see what happens. And then as far as well healed. My little secret is I, I get paid too much in corporate America, um, and I've been paid well in statewide campaigns. And presidential stuff, I tend to work cheap. I did the whole McCann campaign in 2000 I want for to a, say, a, for parenthetically, grand.
1: Uh, I know corporate America's listening right now, so <laughs> you may want to dial back that back. A well, I, or two. I provide
0: value. That's uh, and they, <laughs> they reward that. They're pretty uh, uh, hardcore in their calculation. But... We're very proud of how we ran the super PAC on the governance side. I had major donors on a committee that approved all the expenditures, all the contracts. And so it's, it's kind of, I'm tempted to say, yeah, I'm going down to the Gulfstream dealership tomorrow just because I know it makes heads explode around my industry. But the truth is, um, I'm proud of how we governed it. And we're giving a bunch of money back because we were pretty prudent managers. So we're going to get refund checks out in about three weeks.
1: It sounds like you think you guys are headed for annihilation in November, is that a fair characterization?
0: I'm trying to find a way to see a path where, at the presidential level, we're not because it's heartbreaking. It's bad for the Democratic Party and it's horrible for us. But I can't, I think Trump would be a total disaster as nominee. He alienates every swing voter you need, there aren't enough pissed off old white guys to win. And Cruz for years has sold a myth that there's this secret vote that if we don't nominate a conservative, they're all on Jupiter, but they're gonna millions of voters are gonna appear. That is empirically false. We have data on this, you can prove it. So, you know, we will see. Now, of the two of them, I'm for Cruz over Trump. I think a Trump nomination would be a disaster for the country. I think a Cruz nomination would merely be a fiasco for the Republican Party, and and let's have the argument. I mean, to Cruz's credit, if he wins the nomination, he'll earn it, and so and he has a theory of how to run a campaign. He has been a critic of past campaigns, so we we do it his way, and then we're no. Now Kasich can win a general election. Kasich is miles ahead of either of these guys, but I'm reminded of the old. uh, Old saying about it, it's either Napoleon or Stalin, depending on which version of the story. I go with the Stalin one because it's a funnier image. But Stalin's <laughs> sitting there throwing people in the Gulag, firing uh, squads, and he get the letter from Rome every other month, and oh, another letter from the Pope, and he'd read it, "Dear Stalin, quit shooting everybody," and he crumple it up and throw it in the garbage can and say, "How many tanks does the Pope have?" So Kasich has everything but delegates, and. He'll make an argument on the floor that he's the winner, and he'll be right. And he'll shoot up in delegates. On a second ballot, if we get there, a bunch of regulars will go to Kasich. He'll double, but I still don't think he'll be able to get to a majority. I hope I'm wrong about this.
1: If I were a delegate, I'd be for Kasich.
0: But now, let me ask you a question about safe. that.
1: How do you nominate a candidate when most of the people sitting in the room were strongly and vehemently for someone else? Isn't, well, that, isn't that a – well? You
0: mean how do you nominate somebody else, or how does it yeah, third like, place guy? You know,
1: let's say Kasich, who finishes. He's struggling now to overtake Marco Rubio, who dropped right. out several months ago.
0: He did beat Rubio in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking that winning in Manhattan is not normally the calling card in a Republican convention, but to... it does
1: underscore a point, yeah. doesn't it? Which yes. is your kind of Republicans aren't doing well among Republican voters right now. Right? No, no.
0: I mean, they, you know, look at Walker, look at Jeb, look at Marco. Um, I would say here's what I think the convention dynamic will be. Trump's going to – Trump could get there now if he can really run the table. But he has
1: to win Indiana, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, and Indiana's tricky. There's no 50 minimum. So you win a district with 34% or win – you get all the delegates in that district or statewide. So it's almost winner-take-all plurality. And Nebraska, and you combine those two, you're, you know, that's ninety delegates. So, and Maryland, the, these these things next week are proportional, except of course for the Mass. Excuse me, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, where all but the statewide guys are, you know, double secret Philly handshake there for you. <laughs> we're, we're C, and historically, the Christian conservatives and kind of the old grassroots anti-establishment establishment guys are very good at the delegate caucuses where the bodies are picked, and Cruz is amplifying that and doing a good job of it. So, my guess is if Trump can get to over 1,200, he'll find the next 30. If he's down around 1,175, I don't know if he can do the 50 or not. We'll find out. I'm not so sure. On a second ballot, I think he'll drop a lot. Some will still be stuck. You know, Florida, where Trump's got 99, it's three ballots they're stuck. So not every state is free after the first one. But the natural dynamic of the convention will be more cruise friendly ideologically than anybody else. And he'll have the credibility of having run and came in second. stronger claim. Although a distant second. Distant second. But he'll he'll, he'll have won states. Mm -hmm. He will have more natural organic supporters on the floor, I believe. And I think you're going to see some of the establishment folks giving up on the math after maybe giving Kasich a ballot and saying better to lose with Cruz rather than lose with Trump and have the Cruz faction back in a few years saying, well, we didn't nominate a real conservative and a million people didn't show up.
1: But the high likelihood, Mike Murphy, is that you're going to end up with Trump or Cruz. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, any other scenario, scenario is is uh, is highly unlikely. I'm
0: holding out for alien invasion just to stop the clock on all this. But yeah, the the numbers say Trump or
1: There are some cynics who think this is an alien invasion. <laughs> but do you uh, do you uh, think either of them can win? This is a year to never say impossible,
0: but I'm taking bets and I'm paying huge odds mm-hmm. because Trump alienates college-educated white women and Latinos. I mean, it's like he was built in a lab to alienate them, particularly women. Which is, so you the, can't the weird together. thing about it
1: is that, that, that everybody came out of 2012 saying we got to do better with women and, and and Hispanics. Yeah, but see, our... Meaning Republicans. We're set up, our short-term incentives in the party, in the primary electorate,
0: because remember, you got, say, 128 million general election voters. Last time, you had 19 million primary voters. So in that subset, the incentives are to do a lot of stuff to alienate who you need in the big one. They're not connected. The demography has changed enough that you can have a legitimate debate on, you know, your side on the Democrats that a general election in a presidential year with all the turnout is almost a big democratic primary. You can make that argument, which is fairly new. And the Republican side, people who think that are delusional. You know, we The the general election looks nothing like a Republican primary, but our incentives push these guys into places that are really hard. Now, I think Cruz is a smart guy and a cynic, so I'm not sure what kind of road to Damascus thing he'll try to do if he's the nominee um, to try to become possible in a general election. And Hillary's a deeply flawed candidate, so it could be a perfect storm where an unelectable Republican could somehow win – I mean, Hillary's going to have to build a third wing of the White House just for the ethical blind spot, which in my view is about as big as a semi. That'll be an issue. But the demography, that the wind behind her is so strong. And Cruz has so many positioning problems. Plus his truesness, which is and you know, we'll see how that develops. Uh which is, you know, in Washington, he'll he'll need to double his Secret Service protection the minute he's nominee, just from fellow senators. Uh we will see. But yeah, I'm 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 very depressed about it. It's heartbreaking because um we could win if we had a candidate, and I'm not sure we do.
1: You know, it, it strikes me as we were talking earlier about all the people that you worked for who uh wouldn't pass muster among this primary electorate uh, today. And they all won in blue states or purple states where you did have to persuade and not just mobilize. Um, it's And the Republican Party has gotten very good at the mobilization in off-year elections when the turnout is low and right. uh, much less Democratic. Uh, can the Republican Party win a national election without significant changes. And how do you make this, the the sort of national Republican Party that can win, coexist with the base that dominates these off-year elections, particularly in red states, that is anti-immigration reform, uh, that is uh, very uh, strong on some of these women's issues that uh, run counter to the, the national. How do you how do you make well, all that, that
0: cohere? That is the question of the future. I call it the battle between the mathematicians and the priests. You got mathematicians like me saying, "Well, here's you know, here's when we need to ever have any power." So if you think the conservative movement is not academic and we actually ought to go try to do stuff, this is how we do it. And you've got the priests saying, "You need faith. You need faith. You don't have enough faith. Anybody got a stake? Time, let's burn a mathematician." <laughs> and right now, the the priest side is winning. And, you know, I think there'll be a reckoning after the election because we could lose the Senate. You know, we're definitely fighting for our life there. and it's- Yeah,
1: let me ask you about that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, can you hold on to the Senate? You've got a, f- a four-vote margin in the Senate right now um, if uh, Trump or Cruz are leading the ticket. And, I mean, I saw a poll the other day from Arizona, and your old client, John McCain, was tied with his, his Democratic opponent, uh, in a state where, obviously, uh, there are strong feelings uh, around immigration and other issues, uh, that will be roiled by yeah, a Trump yeah. candidacy.
0: Uh, in an axe fight, I'm betting on McCain. But, yeah, he's got a real race. Other people do. But, you know, some of our folks in blue states are going to have that trouble at the top of the ticket are good candidates. Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire – um, Toomey is a very good mm-hmm. candidate and is working like hell in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania yeah, yeah. So, you know, the Florida open seat, we don't know. There's a primary to sort out, but let's put it this way. Historically, if the patterns of the past repeat and we have a wipeout at the top of the ticket, guys in blue States to begin with are going to have a hell of a hard time. I don't think it's impossible. Um, I think politics is changing, six, and things six, are more d now. Six or seven now.
1: Republican senators yeah. in, in states that Barack Obama carried, yeah, running tough. for real Wisconsin,
0: I mean, it, it is tough. Portman in swing state Ohio. Um, Mark Kirk but I'm here not, in Illinois. Yeah, Mark is in particularly hard trouble in a very hard state. Good senator, but you know, sometimes you can't be the master of your own fate in these presidential years. So it's going to be really tough. But I think you'll see a lot of the focus of the party of fighting like hell, and I think we're holding on to the house. But to your larger question of what do we do? So we have the mathematician priest fight. Were, my belief is if we really wind up in a pile of rubble, um, I am not at all sure a Hillary Clinton presidency will be that successful. And there are a lot of politics she's going to have to do to appease the left and everything. We'll see how that all works out. Um, we're going to have to get back into the idea business again. I mean, we really came to power in the late 70s because we had the reform agenda that middle class people believed in economically. And the middle class, you know, the parties argue on the remedies, but has been squeezed to death in real wages, um, the place America has in the world and security. We're going to have to come back with an argument because for too long, our argument is they suck and let's arrest them all. And that does not build the new conservatism we're going to need. And I think conservatism is eternal. Our ideas are strong. But we, we've got to get back in the solution business that the, the American middle class resonates to and then begin the path back. And I think it'll begin with the governors where we have been very successful still. Um, but it'll be a fight because in, we're going to have some dead cat bouncing in 2018 because we're going to win some stuff for mm-hmm. free that we never should have lost. But thanks to Trump, if it's Trump or perhaps Cruz, we will. So we're going to be given trophies. Those a good out.
1: Senate. Yeah. scenario. and
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in the house, we we lose some. We should never lose. I don't think it'll cost us the majority, but then we should get them back. Uh, and I want to make sure, at least in my tiny role in any of this, is that we don't learn the wrong lessons from our off-year comeback.
1: Um, let me ask you this uh, as, we, uh, as we finish this conversation. Uh, I've known you for years and years and years. One development in your life, uh, r- rather recently... Was that you settled down, you got married, mm-hmm. you have you have a child now. Uh, how's that changed you?
0: Oh, it's the ultimate growing up experience. Um, you care about other things and you politics is a great adrenaline ride in your twenties and thirties, and then the forties you start to kinda of have doubts. And you know, I got married late in life and I have a, a wife that puts up with it and a and a good life. Yeah, we have our little daughter Audrey. She I came home the other day and she was in a little Hillary uh, t-shirt somebody my wife of course is a democrat so we're we're in counseling now over that i (laughs) uh, if it was chicago i could register her to vote at three and vote a republican to get even but um no it's been great i've I've never had a happier life and um i always try to do other interesting things politics is great but i have a friend in canada tom long who's a great politician up there who has the the greatest thing about politics which is try other stuff because it'll always be there You can always come back to it. So I'm pretty much in the other stuff business now. But I'll continue to opine and uh, irritate Trump supporters on Twitter and do a little television at NBC and try to be a voice as we rebuild the party because I'm a conservative. I believe in our ideas, and I think if we get smart about it, we can win,
1: and we should. Well, we'll be listening, man. Always fun. Great to be with you. Thank Thank you, pal. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you
0: for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.